With a crisis like this, what the individual leader does actually really matters. Not only have we done badly, we should have done much better than everyone else because we had such capabilities. We had the science, we have the experience, but we also had a president that refused to take responsibility and lead when it comes to this kind of a crisis. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. As I am recording this little spiel with which I tend to start the podcast, it is less than three weeks until the US election. And of course, we have learned four years ago not to trust the polls completely. And yet, all indications currently are that Joe Biden will beat Donald Trump and that he will beat him quite convincingly. So I can't help starting to think about what it would mean if that turns out to be true. And I think that it would undermine a dominant and quite pessimistic theory about American politics in two ways. Over the last four years, we have essentially come to agree with Donald Trump about his theory of politics, that racism seems to play well in American politics, that he has gained from his racist provocations, and that there aren't really any swing voters who are relevant anymore. You can win in national politics just by mobilizing your base. Well, thankfully, it looks as though Joe Biden is proving both parts of that Trumpian theory of American politics, which has come to be accepted even by many pundits and political scientists who loathe Trump as false. According to current polls, Biden is making up a huge amount of ground among the demographic groups that went very strongly for Trump in 2016, among voters over 65, among white voters, including in the suburbs and the exurbs, and even in rural areas. Actually, insofar as Trump has gained it all over the last four years, interestingly, it is among uh, younger voters and people of color. And secondly, most importantly, it looks less and less plausible that the vast majority of Americans voted for Trump because of his racism in 2016, or that they're abandoning him now despite his racism. In fact, when you look at polls, the issue area on which Trump is faring most poorly by far is not the economy, is not even his handling of COVID-19, it is his handling of race relations. So once again, I'm allowing myself to be a little bit hopeful, a little bit optimistic. If the United States become one of the first countries to throw out an authoritarian populist after the first term in office, if a large number of Americans who have voted for the Republican Party for a long time say, you know what, finally, I've had it enough with Donald Trump, in part because of how irresponsible he is on matters of race that, I think, should give us a more positive image of America than we've dared to hold in the last four years. My next guest probably needs a little introduction. Ian Bremer has founded and is the president of the Eurasia Group, a risk consultancy. He is one of the best connected people in the political world talking to a very broad range of people, advising a very broad range of people, and has a really global view, trying to understand uh, the economy and politics 
in a truly global perspective. We had a very wide range of conversation on the podcast about the role of the United States in the world, what this country gets wrong, and what the world might look like after the election, after COVID, what kind of world is emerging at this point. We agree on many things. We also quite passionately disagree on a couple of things. I'm pretty sure you'll find the conversation entertaining and interesting. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hi, Asha. Good to talk to you, man. Last time we saw each other was for Intelligence Squared debate in New York City, which was a lot of fun. Those things aren't possible these days with Corona. So I guess my first question to you as somebody who really tries to look at the world in a global way is, where are we at with this pandemic? How is it going to change the world? Well, of course, it is possible with Corona, just not in the United States right now. And that's part of the problem. We haven't handled it very well. And you could do it in China. You could certainly do it in New Zealand. You can increasingly even do it in Germany, but you can't do it here. I mean, where are we? It's the worst crisis of our lifetimes. It is one that needs to be responded to with coordination. Both in the United States, this country is maximally divided. And so we're blaming each other and it's red states versus blue states. The election, of course, season doesn't help. And internationally, it's a global disease, and we're not responding to it globally. We're responding to it in a very fragmented way. And it means that the efficiency of the response is going to be much less. It's going to hurt a lot more people. And it makes you a little bit more despondent about where the geopolitical balance, where the global order, where, where we are heading right now. It's not the best time to have a crisis. So, you know, one of the things that we're obviously trying to do as humans is to find patterns in things. We're trying to find patterns in what causes the transmission of the virus. We're trying to find patterns in which countries are doing better or worse at handling it. And we're trying to find patterns in who's likely to come out in geopolitical terms, relatively stronger or weaker. You know, I find that the longer I stare at this stuff, the less I know. I was in New York for a weekend quite recently, and I was just puzzled by how little transmission there seems to be, because certainly there's lots of people who don't seem to be taking safety precautions very seriously. There is a little bit of a pattern, I think, to populist leaders not being very good in dealing with this virus, but it's not a very strong pattern. And certainly there are some democracies that are doing terribly and some democracies that are doing well, there are some dictatorships that are doing terribly and some dictatorships that are doing well. And finally, it's not clear that there's a pattern to, you know, relatively affluent or relatively poor countries coming out better. Do you see any obvious megatrends that are going to come out of this in terms of populism, in terms of democracy and autocracy, or in terms of the West or the rising powers? Well, those are two very different questions, which is, you know, first, who's good at this? What are the patterns that we can see? And secondly, given all of that, what are the trends that come from it? I agree with you strongly, Yasha that there are authoritarian states that have responded very effectively. By the way, I don't consider China lead among them. I would say Vietnam would be lead among them. That with a crisis like this, even if you're an advanced industrial democracy, what the individual leader does actually really matters, which is not true for most things, right? I mean, usually the nature of the president or prime minister in a democracy matters less than so many structural aspects of the nature of the government and the bureaucracy and all the rest. I mean, here in the United States, we have 
extraordinary scientific capabilities to respond to a pandemic. I mean, you probably saw that I responded to Ross Douthat's piece in the New York Times that said that, well, we didn't actually do that badly. I'm like, no, 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 no. Not only have we done badly, we should have done much better than everyone else because we had such capabilities. We had the science, we have the experience, but we also had a president that refused to take responsibility and lead and does not care about expertise, actively rejected it. And it turns out that that actually trumps, if you will, all of the intrinsic advantages of being an advanced industrial democracy when it comes to this kind of a crisis. Seated at those things, and we did not. Trump saying he didn't want to panic people, so that's why he downplayed it. Well, Merkel didn't panic people. She just didn't downplay it. So I think there is a pattern. I think there's a very strong pattern, and that's the pattern. So I buy that, but I think the problem often in you know political science is that when you find a variable that really explains something, it usually is because the really interesting question is what explains that variable in the first place. So look, I agree that political leadership matters a lot, that we're paying in the United States an incredibly high price for having Donald Trump as our president in the moment of this unprecedented global pandemic. But I guess the question is, you know, what explains why some of these countries have better leaders than others, which is to say, wouldn't we want to think that democracies would have better leaders than dictatorships, that non-populist leaders are going to take these kinds of things more seriously than populist leaders. And yet some of that seems to be scrambled by the crisis. I mean, on populism, I think, I'd love to hear your opinion. I think there's two schools of thought on that. On the one hand, it does seem like many of the people who you've mentioned as having done the worst are populists, whether it's Trump, whether it's AMLO in Mexico, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil. And many of the people who... Uh, you mentioned as having done particularly well, are non-populist, whether it's Merkel in Germany or whether it's the new prime minister in Greece uh, and so on. So Mitsotakis, um, yeah. Mitsotakis, yeah. yeah. Does that help to explain something within democracies? Or actually, when you no. look at Central Europe, there's a bunch of populist leaders who I'm not a fan of who seem to have done quite well on Corona. So that doesn't seem to quite explain it either. No, I think it's because I think it's easier than that. I mean, I'm a political scientist. You're a political scientist. We shouldn't overthink this because it turns out that with a crisis like this, even if you're an advanced industrial democracy, what the individual leader does actually really matters, which is not true for most things. Right. I mean, usually the nature of the president or prime minister in a democracy matters less than so many structural aspects of the nature of the government and the bureaucracy and all the rest. I mean, here in the United States, we have extraordinary scientific capabilities to respond to a pandemic. I mean, you probably saw that I responded to Ross Douthat's piece in the New York Times that said that, well, we didn't actually do that badly. I'm like, no, 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 no. Not only have we done badly, we should have done much better than everyone else because we had such capabilities. We had the science, we have the experience, but we also had a president that refused to take responsibility and lead and does not care about expertise, actively rejected it. And it turns out that that actually trumps, if you will, all of the intrinsic advantages of being an advanced industrial democracy when it comes to this kind of a crisis. And so I think that it's that simple. 
there are so few things in the world that we study as political scientists where understanding the nature of the individual leader and their response is the driving force. I think in this case, that is the driving force. I think a different president, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, would have accepted responsibility as leader, used expertise, had the doctors, had the economists, had the epidemiologists front and center, wore a mask, wasn't a narcissist around it, would have made an enormous difference. I think that if you could have gotten all of the Trump supporters out there wearing MAGA masks and Trump saying that was their patriotic duty from day one, I think you would end up with meaningfully less deaths in the United States. You still would have had, you know, the mistakes from Cuomo, for example, in New York and all of the folks in the old age homes dying as they did in Brussels and Belgium, for example. But overall, the United States, just from that, would have looked significantly better on the league tables than our peers compared to where we are right now. And when that's true, when you can have a change in outcome that's that great on the back of a fairly simple decision made by one individual, President Trump or President Bolsonaro or you know President Lopez Obrador, that tells you all you need to know. How much do you think this is going to damage these leaders? My impression with a lot of these politicians is that the population had a huge amount of tolerance for them because all the warnings of the political leads about the damage they might do never quite seemed to materialize. You know, in the lives of ordinary people, politics, as you were saying, usually has a relatively limited influence, at least in times of peace and relative prosperity. So it's easy to say, well, look, they're all warning about how horrible the impact of these politicians is going to be. But you know what? My life is not so different from what it was like three or four years ago. So perhaps they're exaggerating and this guy is actually doing an okay job. The pandemic has changed this. I mean, life has now changed for people in a very substantial way. And the lives are worse than three or four years ago. Is this something that is going to a lastingly damage those incompetent leaders who didn't listen to the science, who didn't tell their followers to wear masks and so on? Or do you think the ability to obfuscate, the ability to spin their own narrative is such that they might emerge from that less scathed than we're now assuming? Well, on the more optimistic side, it's clear that some leaders that have done a good job have benefited. I mean, President Moon in South Korea ended up with a supermajority in his election in parliament on the back of doing a great job. Merkel in Germany, whose legacy was shot by taking all of those Syrian refugees, very unpopular move at home and across Europe, suddenly is the most popular leader in Germany and Europe again. So I do think there are benefits that come from doing a great job. But your direct question, you know, do I think that Lopez Obrador, Trump, Bolsonaro are going to get really hurt? So far, the answer seems to be not really. Bolsonaro is actually polling at his highest since he's become president, in part because he's gotten a bunch of stimulus through. And so his base and some more than that feel like uh, they're doing better economically in response, that he's been a leader. And the numbers of cases, which were, I mean, Brazil was the epicenter of the coronavirus crisis for a short period of time, but is so no longer and that's also given him a bit of a tailwind. In the United States, 
Certainly, there was no bounce for Trump, but his approval ratings today are almost identical to where they were when he was elected. And on the back of the extraordinary, staggering underperformance, in my view, of Trump around coronavirus and the beginnings of underperformance on the economic side, which they did a very good job of in the first few months, both Powell as Fed chair, but also Mnuchin and Pelosi together in terms of the bailout and relief, which is now coming a cropper on political disagreements. But here's an interesting thing, Yasha. When I used to, in my public-facing work, talk about the data around coronavirus, and I'd put out information that came from the CDC or from Johns Hopkins or any of those other aggregation sites of data, people might politically disagree with some of the analysis, but they wouldn't disagree with the baseline data. That just wasn't a question. I will tell you that in the last two to three weeks, when I've done the same, I've had an astonishing number of people respond that that's fake data, that in reality, only 6% of the people that we say are dying from coronavirus, the 190 plus thousand right now, actually died from coronavirus. There is an active disinformation campaign going on um, about comorbidities, for example, and the rest, to try to say that this is not a big deal, that this is indeed a hoax, which Trump did not say originally. Originally, he was saying that was the Democratic response was a hoax and not that the coronavirus was itself. But that is now the message that you are starting to see in social media. And that playing into the incredible divide, the incredible polarization where people that are inclined to support Trump just get a completely different narrative about this disease and about Democrats trying to shut down the economy and keep football from starting up again and keep them from going to schools so that Trump will lose. I think that that narrative is gaining a lot of strength, which disturbs me immensely having nothing to do with partisanship. It disturbs me because it's so anti-science and it's because it's just wrong and it's going to hurt a lot of people. I really do worry that uh, the nature of social media and technology, when manipulated by malevolent forces, turns out to truly undermine the democratic franchise, something I know you agree with very strongly. Yeah, you know, I've struggled between feeling reassured and feeling depressed by the fact that human stupidity seems to be a universal both across time and across space. You know, I learned over the last months about how the Spanish flu played out in different parts of the world and the, you know, intense resistance to public health measures against it in the United States with the sort of anti-mask leak in San Francisco in 1918, 1919, which sounds remarkably similar to what's going on now. If you read Albert Camus' The Plague, the dynamics in the population of Oran are strikingly similar to what's going on today. And of course, now you have these denialists about COVID and conspiracy theorists about COVID, not just in the United States, but even in places like Germany, but are normally more consensual. But it is worrying to what extent in the United States this is being pushed by the media allies, at least, of the president in a really deeply irresponsible way. I guess I have a question for you broadening out a little bit about our economic system. 
in April, I read a lot of things that were broadly saying that this proves our economic system to have failed, that it shows international trade to be entirely irrational because of the way that supply chains were suddenly disrupted, that capitalism has now gotten to the stage where it too needs to ration toilet paper and so on. It isn't this sort of the equivalent of what was happening in the Soviet Union. I'm struck five or six months on by how resilient our economy has so far proven, how few shortages there actually were, to what limited extent supply chains did break down, that people did not go hungry, and that remarkably the stock market is actually at record highs, or at least it was a few days ago. You know, how do you think our economic system is performing in this moment? And what does the pandemic tell us about what we should preserve and what we should change in our economic system? I completely agree with the point that we're a lot wealthier than we used to be. We have vastly better technologies than we used to have. And those things have allowed us to continue to function. The vast majority of international commerce and trade even though we're not able to see and engage with each other personally. That's quite something. And some of that is the structure of the economy and some of that is the nature of technological progress. But I mean, my God. Now, there's no question that the disruption that comes from technologies is going to speed up very dramatically on the back of this. I mean, a lot more retail stores are going to go bankrupt because Amazon and their cohort are so incredibly effective. A lot of people are going to be out of work on the back of that too. So I agree with you that, generally speaking, international supply chain is incredibly resilient. And to the extent that there are going to be significant trends towards insourcing, they largely come for political reasons as opposed to the pandemic. They come because a whole bunch of really angry people that aren't being taken care of demand that the conditionality of bailouts is you invest more at home. You're a patriotic corporation. So the anti-free trade sentiment, as much as it doesn't make sense economically, is an easy lever to pull when you haven't taken care of your own people for decades. Now, the other side of that question is no matter how well the markets are performing and how well the global economy is doing, this is a K-shaped recovery. You and I, Yasha, are doing very well. And the top universities and the top knowledge economy institutions are doing very well. The majority of Americans are not doing well at all. And they're about to do much worse because we're no longer going to have relief for them. And so they're going to get evicted and they're going to default on their credit card debt and they're going to be out of jobs. And that's a serious problem that we are not really prepared to address. And I think that that is not only true within advanced industrial economies, I think that is also going to be true for a lot of poorer countries around the world because they will not get the vaccine early and they can live with the virus perhaps, but we're not going to live with them living with the virus. We're not going to let them come to our countries in numbers and have jobs that allow them to send remittances back home. We're not gonna to travel to those countries until they get back up and running and we think it's safe, which is quite some time after that happens in the United States and Japan and Germany and yes, China. 
So I agree that global markets are functioning well, global business is doing well, global supply chain is doing well. But when you talk about the global economy, now we're also talking about how it functions for the people in it. And on that front, of course, the global economy is really failing an awful lot of people. And I don't know that you can give it high marks, given that. Yeah, so I think we should distinguish between sort of how the economy is faring within the developed world and the less developed world, right? So certainly most Americans don't profit from the well-performing stock market, and there's a lot of unemployment, but it is striking relative to where we thought we would be four or five months ago, or I think to the kinds of devastating impact that pandemics have had uh, historically, to what extent the livelihood of people in the United States has certainly been affected. There's certainly a lot of people hurting and suffering, but it is not as apocalyptic as many people were predicting a few months ago. And that's all the more the case in countries where governments have also taken more active steps to actually cushion that. So does that mean that you would predict, more broadly speaking, that you know the difference may not be between how the West fares and how countries outside the West fare? Because perhaps actually both China and the United States might come to have vaccines relatively quickly and uh, prove to be relatively resilient. But the difference actually is between how relatively developed countries and less developed countries fare. I think there are a number of places that you want to look at differences. So one difference is how the top 10%, 1%, 0.1% inside the United States fares compared to the bottom 50%. I think that that gap, we've already seen growing inequality in the US for decades now. I think that's going to become much, much greater. And the potential of having a permanent underclass that for generations is unable to dig out is real. I think secondarily, you have this growing gap between the advanced industrial economies and the middle-income developed countries, where many of them felt like they were able to continue to advance. And now, given political backlash, given growth of populism and nationalism in the advanced industrial economies, and given the differential impact of coronavirus on these countries, differential impact of climate change on these countries, availability of capital, which so far has been good in the early days of this pandemic, but unclear that that's going to remain the case for the next couple of years. That's a differential. And then you have the differential between the United States and other allies, because of course, the companies that are doing by far the best on the back of this pandemic are the technological innovators. It's Silicon Valley and Austin and the 128 corridor around Boston and it's Pittsburgh and it's the research triangle in North Carolina. We dominate that field compared to Japan and Canada and Europe. I think that's going to lead to more asymmetric power imbalance between the US and other Western economies coming out of this pandemic as well. So I think that there are really a number of different ways to cut that apple in terms of looking at what comes out of this crisis. Let's move a little bit away from the pandemic and the current crisis to think about the prospects for democracy around the world. The very basic truth, I think, for the 21st century is that democracy will only succeed if it manages to stabilize us in its traditional heartlands, but also if it's going to 
expand to other areas if it takes more and more foothold in Africa, if a lot of influential Asian countries remain or become democracies. But the more democracies in crisis domestically, the less likely that becomes. The more countries that are overthrowing dictators or developing economically in other parts of the world will look to the United States and think, do we really want to emulate that? So I'm torn between my conviction that the basic values of democracy are universal and that people will seek to lead freer lives and realize more political freedom as they develop economically. And on the other hand, the realization of just how weak democracy currently looks and just how unattractive a model in many ways the United States now appears to be. How optimistic are you about the standing of democracy and liberal democratic values in the world? You're a big thinker, 30, 50, 100 years from now. Well, there are two reasons to be more pessimistic. One is that 10 years ago, technology was largely undermining authoritarian regimes and empowering individuals, the communications revolution. And now most trends in technology are the opposite. The surveillance society, big data, actually empowers technologically sophisticated authoritarian regimes and undermine the fabric of civil societies in democracies because you treat citizens as consumers and that polarizes them and delegitimizes institutions. The second reason to be pessimistic is that as China moves towards becoming the world's largest economy, but is not politically reforming towards liberal democracy, you clearly have a hybrid system. Simply the reality of the growth of Chinese power means that the comparative influence of authoritarian model versus liberal democratic model, the money that they have for conditionality and leverage on other countries, and China having emerged as one of the world's two technology superpowers, which five years ago it was not, that's another reason to be pessimistic. So you have those two structural trends that at least for the near to medium term are moving you in a direction away from what you would like to see in the way that you formulated that question. But I guess I would also want to nuance the whole discussion more. Because when we have the discussion in a way that makes it feel like the United States is some archetypal liberal democracy, when of course it never has been, and China is you know, the equivalent on the authoritarian side, when we all know there's a lot of movement inside systems like that. The U.S. has really never been fully representative. I mean, you know, if everyone's reading this book by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast, which I just finished a few weeks ago, that compares the Jim Crow legacy of the United States to Nazi Germany and the Indian untouchable caste system, there are incredible benefits in the United States if you have access to the levers of power but the structural racism in the United States that continues to bedevil us today and is actively rejected as a problem by almost half of society makes you feel like the U.S. is not really functioning as a representative democracy for a lot of its citizens. I mean, Israel is by far the most effective functioning democratic state across the Middle East in terms of, you know, the functionality of their open media and the independence of their judiciary and, you know, availability of education, healthcare, all of these things, as long as you're not Palestinian in the occupied territories. Now, we've had 
people that have been writing for decades saying that if they don't fix that, it's the end of Israel. No, it's not. I mean, they just normalized relations with the UAE. The Palestinian issue is much less urgent today than it was 10 or 20 years ago, even though the objective situation of a Palestinian in the West Bank, in particular Gaza, compared to that of those living in Israel proper, is much greater, that gap, than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And from my perspective, it's fully sustainable. So I guess I have to ask, when we talk about democracies, is how much do we want to idealize systems where democratic principles only represent a comparatively small percentage of the population as a whole, especially if we believe that the fourth industrial revolution slash post-industrial revolution is going to increasingly disenfranchise large amounts of labor from capital, which means that so many people will no longer find the American dream to apply to them. And of course, that was that myth, at least, and to an extent, the reality was always a core part of what made representative democracy in the United States feel functional. I just think these are important things to ask at the same time we're trying to project whether democracy or authoritarianism is quote-unquote winning. Look, I agree with much of that, but I also think that it's important not to overlook the kind of stark differences that it takes an awful lot of education to unsee. So, you know, the United States is clearly a deeply unjust society and one that has a historical legacy of extreme violence and suffering that uh, still shapes the country in many ways today. And certainly China is in many ways an impressive society that has some elements of real deliberation and some elements of bottom-up information flow that allow the regime to be so effective. But nevertheless, when you place them side by side, I think it is very clear and very obvious that one of these societies is free and the other one is not. And in one of these societies, we are able to change our government and in the other, we are not. But in one of these societies, we have had political leaders who come from a disadvantaged minority group, but Barack Obama was black and quite likely next uh, vice president was black. And in China, it would be very hard to imagine having a political leader from, say, Xinjiang. I want to push you a little bit on this because, of course, I mean, I certainly agree with that, but I'm trying to make a point that's a little bit more nuanced. I'm trying to say that if you want to look at the experience of an average Black American male without resources, with no savings, which is the experience of the average Black American male, with their level of interaction with an experience from the judicial system, the education system, the healthcare system, basic infrastructure, policing. Don't compare that to China. Compare it to the liberties that the average citizen, average citizen, experiences in Orban's Hungary. How does that relate? Is it better or worse? I haven't seen anyone really ask that question, but I think it's a meaningful question, right? And that makes you then think about to what extent the existing U.S. system, which I love and I have benefited from massively, but many people have radically different experiences of it. And the U.S. starts appearing more like a hybrid political system than it appears like a representative democracy. 
that's a problem. And I don't know that we are actively trying to address that problem in social science today. I have a few thoughts about this. I mean, one is that when you look at a place like Hungary, I think it's important to recognize to what extent many of his dictatorships offer benefits that are unstable because they're relatively fresh dictatorships, which is to say that Turkey under Erdogan looked like a pretty prosperous place in which people were increasingly unfree. But actually, if you're not particularly interested in politics, life was pretty good. But precisely because of some of the dangers of dictatorship, because of a way in which centralized control allows political leaders to make poor economic decisions, to not be challenged, uh, to not have any countervailing forces that can ensure that they don't uh, ruin the economy, Turkey is now in a much deeper economic crisis. In a similar way, there's a stage in a dictatorship in which it really is just a classic dictatorship, which is to say you can't go and say, I hate the government in any particularly prominent place. But if you're an average citizen, you can complain about the government, nobody cares. And if you're apolitical, you can go about your life without ever having to think about politics. But as challenges to the government mount, it starts to be more oppressive. It starts to politicize greater spheres of society and it can veer into something that is not totalitarian. I don't think Hungary is or will be, but that certainly uh, suddenly tells you how you're to teach your classes, how you're to talk to your friends, punish many more average and ordinary people for a word of anger that may have spoken drunkenly. And that starts to depreciate the quality of a life in a more substantive way as well. I also think for that it's quite important to be very upfront about the deep injustices in the United States and take them very seriously, but also not to paint what I think can be a caricatural vision of what life for the average black person in this country is like. I just looked up from Brookings, median household income for African-Americans, which is $41,500 as of the latest data that is available. I know this is pre-COVID, and I'm sure that it has suffered somewhat this year. You know, that is lower than it is for whites by, I believe, about ten or so thousand dollars, and that is an injustice. But the idea that the median black household in this country is living in terrible poverty, or that it is just a completely different situation from the median white household, as may be true of Palestinians and non-Palestinians in Israel, I think is simply untrue. But wait a second, you're talking about annual income, medium net worth of white households in the United States right now is about $171,000 as of the beginning of 2020. For black households, it's 17,600, it's one-tenth. And that is a legacy of decades of programs that extended credit and allowed whites to build wealth on the back of the Great Depression that blacks were systematically kept out of. And so the idea that you can take a snapshot of how much money a black person in 2020 is making compared to white and then say, ah, (laughs) this is working like a democracy. No, that's not true at all. And again, I am not in any way trying to compare the United States overall with an emerging market or an authoritarian state. We are the wealthiest country on the planet. We have the best technology. We have the best banks. We actually have the reserve currency. We export food. We export energy. We have the strongest military by far. But the average experience of increasingly large number of Americans does not reflect that wealth. And the belief that the average American will participate 
for themselves and their children in the opportunities that America has historically promised them is going away for a large percentage, which is why you got Trump, which is why you got Bernie Sanders, which is why you have Black Lives Matter. It's why you have Me Too. And it's why those things aren't nearly as toxic in countries like Canada, which has a social contract that is much more diverse and effective, or in Germany, where they actually addressed the Holocaust, as opposed to the United States that still hasn't addressed the Confederacy, for Christ's sake. So I do think that we can't forget about those things. I'm not suggesting that we forget about those things, but I think it's also easy to caricature those things. And I do think- No, I'm, and I'm just saying when between. you give, but I am saying, Yasha, that when you come to me with how much money the average black compared to the average white American makes in 2020, that's a caricature. And I just want to make sure that people are aware of that. I think that that's uh, completely untrue. And I think that what you were saying was a caricature because what you were saying is, you know, the average African-American, from the way you were talking, lives in poverty without any opportunity in a city, in a crime-ridden neighborhood. That's sort of what you were implying. And I think that is actually a greater caricature of the African-American experience than to cite uh, the Black median household income. I did not mean to say that there are no racial injustices. I did not mean to say that there aren't very deep problems that we have to address. But, you know, I think one of the things that is interesting is the disjunction between the political mood of the majority of African-Americans and how white elites like you and I tend to talk about it, which is to say that African-Americans did not choose Bernie Sanders in the majority. Otherwise, he would be the nominee of the Democratic Party. They actually chose Joe Biden. Many, many more African-Americans chose Joe Biden in the primaries than chose Bernie Sanders. One of the interesting things about optimism that you talk about is that there is indeed a deep crisis at the moment of how optimistic or pessimistic Americans are. But actually in polls, it turns out that members of ethnic minorities, including both African-Americans and Latinos, are significantly more optimistic about their personal futures, including their economic futures, than white Americans. So I think the story is a little bit more subtle. Look, I agree completely that the problem is not only today about where Black Americans are in the United States. Undereducated white men are by far the most pessimistic group in the country, and that is because their trajectory is deteriorating the fastest. They're the one group whose life expectancy is actually reducing and the opioid addictions and the suicide rates and all the rest. And you put that on top of eight years of Barack Obama and look at the stories that were told. I mean, even the birtherism that President Trump or then candidate Trump was attempting to promote about Obama. These things clearly are very deep-seated. And again, my, my concerns are not just about the United States and what we do with Black Americans. My concerns are that the opportunities that I had as a kid from the projects because of my family, or you look at J.D. Vance and you know, his book that got so much attention a few years ago, Hillbilly Elegy, I think that the ability of the United States to create those sorts of opportunities for average rank and file Americans has deteriorated significantly since I was a kid. And the pandemic is gonna make that worse. And you know, you'd think that with Obama, an obvious social progressive, that inequality would have improved and they would be able to address it. And the answer was it didn't happen. And with Trump, you'd think we'd be able to address it and it hasn't happened. And the pandemic is an accelerant. 
So I think when the country as a whole is heading in that trajectory and there's that much pessimism out there, that much of a political divide, that little of a sense of what the country stands for among average Americans, that many young people that are saying that they don't even believe in American democracy and would be okay with a military rule in the country. And I'm sure you saw that stat just like I did. I think it was from Pew a year ago. It was, in fact, from a study that I published, Ian. Go ahead. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, even better. So you clearly know. Then you have to ask yourself, what is driving that and how you can improve it? So let me ask you that question. How can we improve it? What do you think the United States can do to renew itself and live up to its promise better? But what can other countries, which obviously face a real challenge from populism and the dissatisfaction of political institutions as well, uh, whether it is countries in Western Europe and other democracies around the world, what can we do in the next years and decades to master those challenges better? Clearly, you and I sitting here talking about it's a wonderfully important topic, but there are fantastic numbers of people that are working on this issue and continuing to fail all the time. So it's obviously not easy. But I think there are a few different baskets of types of solutions. One basket is we need everyone engaged in the same dialogue, having conversations about the same sets of facts. And that means that we actually need serious regulation, intrusive regulation over social media. We have to get a handle on malicious spread of misinformation and fake news, which is doing more to damage the popular mood and the ability to work constructively together on solutions than anything I've experienced in my lifetime. And right now, they're throwing a lot of lobbying money at avoiding it. They're denying it. They're taking, you know, not only half measures, one-eighth measures, and it's too late. And they're functionally regulating themselves in a space where they're operating as monopolies. And that's about as anti-American as you can get, right? So that's one set of problems. A second set of problems is that American policymakers, many of whom are older white men and grew up with a sense of American exceptionalism, need to start being willing to look around the world and saying, where are places that we can actually learn from? What are best practices that we don't have in the United States on some of this that we could actually do better? I don't think it helps at all to have a lot of Americans that are saying in the political discourse that you know Canada and the Nordic countries are socialists when, when actually they are democracies that function quite well and are in many ways more inclusive than the United States. I, I think we're going to have to be willing to learn more from these folks. And then finally, you know, I think these issues of redistribution, of the fact that we're going to need to spend a lot more because labor and capital are becoming disintermediated. We're going to have to think about education differently. You don't just go to high school and college and then you're done for the rest of your life. You're going to need universal lifetime training. That's expensive. We need to have a social contract that works for a gig economy, which is not the way it functions today. That's really hard to do. And if we don't, we're going to leave a lot more people behind and behind for good. None of these are easy or we would have already resolved them. The last one is not only hard, but it's really expensive. And I just don't see any political leaders at the national level today that would have the political inclination and the political capital to be able to get that done. Ian Brummer, thank you so much for coming on The Good Fight. Yeah, sure, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show 
to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.